Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. In this episode, I'm joined by Kim Mahler, Director of Marketing and Insights on the Innovation and Foresight Team at Molson Coors. This was a really interesting conversation. And ever since having Rebecca Ryan on the podcast to talk about what it is to be a futurist, I've really been fascinated with how we pay attention to the trends and signals that are going on in the world and, and what that might mean for potential futures. And I was introduced to, to Kim Mahler. And this is what she does. She works on a team for Molson Coors that is responsible for looking at the world, understanding what possible futures might look like, where trends may be going, and then developing those trends into specific products so they can evolve Molson Coors to meet the needs of the audience. And I just thought it's such a great example of how we can use this stuff in a practical basis that I wanted to bring her on the show and have her explain what she does and, and how her team approaches the work that they do. While we aren't all lucky enough to be working in this type of cool future foresight role, I think the lessons of what they do and how they do it apply to any kind of business leader. You know, we are all responsible for looking forward and trying to think how we're going to evolve our business, how we're going to evolve our team, just how we're going to make the experience better for our people and our clients over the next. 12 months, even the next week. And so I think there's a ton in here that people can pay attention to and, and take and use in some way in their own lives or in their own work. I hope you enjoy it. I hope this is an interesting conversation. I also hope it's a helpful conversation. Here is Kim Mahler. Kim, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you on and talk about all the cool work that you are doing. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So could you explain what an innovation and foresight team is and does? Yes, I will try to give you my my best explanation. First, I'll say I'm biased. I feel like I'm pretty lucky and the work that we get to do is pretty, pretty cool. My team is part of the broader marketing organization at Molson Coors. So we sit within the insights function. And I'm going to give you a short and long answer to your question. So the short answer is, we study things like human needs, explore culture, and investigate product trends to unlock new opportunities for innovation, right? Our goal is to help us really like humanize our business for growth. So that's the shorter answer. But I'm actually going to give you a longer, more in-depth answer and kind of break out the two parts of my job into two different definitions. Perfect. This is a, this is a podcast, so we got time. Okay, great. All right. So when I think about foresight at first... And I think you had a futurist on before, you know, when a lot of people think about foresights or what those teams do, they typically say things like, oh, they predict the future. And that's not really the case. <laughs> well, I'd love that to be the case. We'd all be millionaires if that were the case. We can't predict the future, but what my team does is to help prepare our organization for it. So we spend a lot of our time thinking about possibilities, right? So we are exploring like macro cultural shifts category shifts, and we're trying to scenario plan for the future. So we might study things like the changing definition of wellness or demographic and cultural shifts. We talk about the rising, the challenge of like folks expecting more and more from brands and the effect that that's having. So we study like big macro shifts and the foresight part of our job. 
And then as much as we can, we try to make that mean something for our products. And that's really where the innovation insights part of my job comes in. So our innovation insights team functions a lot like traditional innovation insights teams do at other organizations, where our goal is really to help develop new products. So we spend a lot of our time talking to people about what are the products they like and why, you know, what are the gaps in their products? Do they have problems right now that they can't solve that maybe a new innovation would help them solve? So we work really hand in hand with our innovation team to come up with new products that meet consumers' needs. So as an insights function, we really try to act as the voice of the consumer. You'll hear a lot of folks talk about that in their insights group. So we ensure that everything that we're coming out with, every new product that we're developing, that it's relevant for people, right? So we'll do everything from test testing an idea. It might just be like a statement, like a new beverage, to testing concepts. We work with consumers to test the packaging to make sure it's like standing out its shelf and even getting noticed. And then we'll test the liquid to make sure that we have something great tasting. And all of those things need to work together cohesively to have a product that is relevant for someone that meets their needs, that they want to purchase it. And then when they pick it up and do purchase it, that they purchase it again. So my team does have two kind of different functions, one being the foresights, the big conceptual space what are the possibilities? And then two is like, how do we create products to meet those? And those two are very closely linked to one another. I love that. Thank you for the the lengthy explanation too. Yeah. How big is the team at Molson Coors? Like, is this like three people who do this work or is this 500 people that do this work? Like what, what kind of an enterprise is doing this? Yeah. So my team is six. So I have six people holistically. Myself and one of my senior managers are more focused on the foresight lens of the business. And the rest of my team, while they very much engage in like the big macro shifts, are more focused on the innovation insights part of the business. Now, there was a former part of the foresight team that was like larger at the organization that sat at a different structured level. But foresight teams are different in every function. You know, sometimes they sit with innovation, sometimes they sit more in your strategy. Sometimes they sit at a leadership level. They're all over the place, but ours, we're, we're more, most closely tied with innovation and a team of five plus myself. And then what teams do you then plug into? Cause I imagine you're touching several of the other teams to actually pull off the sort of foresight to actual product on the shelf life cycle. Like there's, there's a, the, the whole organization would have to be involved in that. It, to some level. So what are the teams that you plug into the most? Yeah, because of where we sit, we're really plugged in to insights. I'm a part of insights, right? So we're very plugged in there and we will inform. I have brand insights counterparts that are helping to ensure, you know, our advertising is relevant to our consumers, like that our brand health is where it should be. So we're very tightly plugged into them obviously the nature of innovation. We're very plugged into our innovation team. And because of that, I'm working pretty closely with research and development as well. So we'll work with them on, you know, hey, here's the big shifts and trends we're seeing to prepare them so they can build the capabilities so that we can actually create the things that are coming. So those are like the direct teams that I interact with on a daily basis or innovation, research and development and broader insights. But you're right, because of the nature of foresight, like our work can really inform 
the entire broader organization. Now, we're not always staffed to, to be able to do that, unfortunately. But for example, we've worked in the past with folks like HR, because if we're talking about cultural shifts or how identity is evolving or how maybe mental health is on the rise, like that's very important to our employee population too, right? It's very important to be able to recruit and retain new talent. So there's a direct link with like HR function, direct link with strategy. So when we work with our corporate strategy team and they're trying to create goals for the organization, we're tied into them because a lot of the shifts that we're seeing are going to have an impact on the strategy long-term. So how do they prepare that? And then of course, depending on the type of things that you're studying, it could have an impact for the entire organization. You know, if we're thinking about the changes in climate, right? And thinking about water reduction, well, that's going to have an impact on supply chain. If we're thinking about things like the rising artificial intelligence, like that could have an impact on IT. So when you think about foresights, it really can have an impact on the entire organization. Where I particularly sit, our direct impact is on innovation though. So what was your background then? How did, how did you actually come to be doing this work? How does one get trained to do foresight work? Yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky, actually. I, I kind of fell into this role and I learned a lot on the job. So my background, I actually went to school for psychology, which was really helpful when it came to understanding like human behavior and the natural curiosity to wonder why humans do the things they do. So that was really helpful. But I actually started in a completely different field. I didn't even know what insights or foresights was when I graduated from college. So I did a couple odd jobs. I was an event florist. I worked for business to business telecom. I was a recruiter. And I landed at a small fresh food consulting firm where I really got my like feet wet on analytics and research for the first time, we ended up getting bought out by Nielsen, which was great because suddenly I had this massive view of so many tools and resources when it came to research and analytics. But it wasn't until I moved to Molson Coors that I even really understood what Foresights was. So I was a part of a small team called the Human Experience Team, where we were really focused on futures thinking. And we did all types of work from how is the future of marketing going to change to what kind of products do we need to invent to the future to studying things like human identity and what does that mean? And that's, I really learned hands-on. So I'm very privileged that I had an excellent manager who I still keep in touch with, but really taught me on the job. Like he saw something in me, which I'm so grateful for, and taught me how to think big, how to think conceptually, how to see possibilities that I couldn't see. So it was probably the most challenging time in my career because he really pushed me out of my comfort zone, but without a doubt is the time that I learned the most. So I owe a lot of credit to learning directly from him and from that team. And from there, I've been able to really just leverage my network. So I've met some really intelligent futurists out there. I've met some great vendors and partners who help me get smart and building my own network where if I have questions about futures thinking or whatever that is, that I can tap on other experts in the area. So I'm pretty lucky. And then I learned on the job, I was a vulnerable moment. I was very intimidated by that for a long time that I didn't have the formal, I wasn't formally trained in futures thinking, but I do think it's a skill that can be learned 
And for anybody out there, you know, who might be listening, who's interested in this work, because it's pretty, it's pretty fun and creative work. I, I do think it's a skill that can be learned. Can you talk to how you learn to see possibilities that you might not otherwise have seen? I think that was what you had said before. So like, what would an example be maybe from your past or just, you can just make up an example of how maybe you used to see a trend and think about it versus now how you see a trend and think about it. I'm going to probably think out loud for a minute, but I think if I think about a big shift, like well-being or wellness, right? I might've thought that before and thought, how do we create a product that would hit on wellness trends, right? Like how do I create a product that is maybe low in calories or gives people a sense of control or has an added benefit? And those are all good ways of thinking. But I think if you can pull back and think about all the possibilities in a bigger way of where wellness is headed, wellness is much bigger than like a physical wellness, you know, so first taking a step back and thinking about something like wellness holistically, it's also your mental wellness or well-being. It's also your emotional space. It's also how those things are interconnected. One thing we've learned over the years is that, you know, things like your financial health has an impact on your mental health, which has an impact on your physical health and how those all things are interconnected. And so I think if I had a similar question now, what I would do is take a further step back and look broader at that first and, and think about like, if I need to make a wellness product, what are all the ways wellness could be impacting folks? And, it, and maybe it's more than just functional wellness. Maybe it's emotional part of wellness or your overall well-being. And I think getting in the habit of looking at a question and taking a step back is something that I learned throughout that process and it's been really helpful. Yeah. So it sounds like you're looking for the the ripples in the pond. Like we're going to drop this in. It's going to create ripples in all directions. What are those ripples then going to have an impact on? Like, or a better, another way to say it is like, if this is just a piece of the web and the web is plugged into other pieces of the web, if we shake the web here, the whole thing's going to shake. Like, what is that interplay going to look like beyond just this thing that we're focused on? Yeah, is that fair? That's much better said. <laughs> totally fair. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not just about taking a step back and looking, but how things are interconnected. We often look at an axis, right? Like, if this, then this, but if this, then this, right? So looking at it two different ways. So if we think about things like sustainability and its intersection with something like nostalgia that could take us in a very different place. Like what are the types of themes or products or situations that could, could rise out of that intersection, right? Like maybe I want things that are more natural or remind me of the way times were, or I want clear ingredients without all of this extra, right? But you could also look at sustainability with the lens of the future. And that might take you in a very different path. And you might think about things like sustainability and its intersection with technology, for example, and how can we use technology for more sustainable futuring, right? More sustainable products. And how is that an enabler? So I think that's very well put. It's taking a step back, but also looking at these intersections of different forces and themes and 
and trying as much as you can to prepare yourself for any of those that could be your future reality, right? They might not all come to fruition. Some may, some may not, and very likely some will for some people and not for others. So how do we prepare for many possibilities or many scenarios? Follow me down this rabbit hole for a second, but it makes me think I like to, to write on the side. And so I read a lot about what makes good writing. And I was reading a blog post by a fantasy author named Brandon Sanderson and who does a lot of teaching as well. And he was talking about world building. And he said, what a lot of amateur authors try to do is they try to throw everything into the world that they can think of and they try to make it as creative as they can. But he essentially said, what really makes a captivating story is when you change just one thing And then you get really thoughtful at all the ripples that that one change would have on every different part of society and the world at large, and then explore that over the course of the story. And I heard that and I read that and was like, oh, that's brilliant. And I thought about all these stories that I had read where, yeah, they just tweaked one thing, but the world looked completely different because of how that rippled out into the world. And I think relating that back to what you're talking about, about like business and things like, I think there is power to thinking about the impact that changes are going to have and how that's going to ripple through all the different parts of society. And so when you're doing any kind of futures work, I think rather than think about all the different futures, thinking about like really fleshing out what these changes could look like and what impact they could have probably actually makes you more likely to be successful. It makes me think about like creativity too. Like if anybody gave you some kind of task of paint me, whatever you want, it's, you're going to be kind of stifled. Right. But if I say, paint me a picture of your dog, like you can be more creative within that. Right. And maybe that's a, a silly example, but we do think about frameworks that help set us up for success to think of because if I if I said to you, O'Brien, what's the future? Like what's going to happen in the future? That is like an overwhelming question and can be really where do you even start with things like that? So a lot of folks will use things like the steep framework, for example. So we look at things, and, and that's one of many acronyms that you can apply to this, but we look at things like social changes, right? For example. So that's the S, but we look at things like demographic shifts and how that's changing. How is things like gender fluidity evolving, the rising discourse of inequities, things like the bifurcation and division in this country, right? As as social impacts. And we can scenario plan, like what are different possibilities because of that? Like where could head? And it it gives you kind of a guardrail. And and we do the same things for all of those big, big cultural shifts. So we look at technology in the same way. Like what is web three or the metaverse going to mean, right? Is that going to mean a future where everybody is only online and we're only have digital selves? Or are we going to have like an analog backlash where we want more of that one-on-one connection or how we're both going to evolve, right? And also we look in technology things like I already mentioned, like the advancement of like artificial intelligence. And then we go through and do that for environment. What's the impact of climate change, the extreme weather, the water shortage. We look things like the economy, right? Inflation is a big topic, increasing uncertainty on consumer spending. Then you look at like politics. So 
again, more bifurcation, political parties, like in conflict with one another, but also like rising political influence of people who have been traditionally left out. We look at well-being, the threat of other diseases. Is there going to be another wave of something like COVID trying to increase our awareness of mental health and what's that, what's going to happen, um, how wellness is more intertwined. So you can look at all those. It's steep and then added a W. Like I said, everybody has their own framework for that. But that's a great place to start when you're trying to think about what could happen in the future is to look at those big drivers of change and those big macro forces. So you can kind of start seeing how those might interact amongst themselves or with one another. And and it allows you to apply that creativity to think about what could be possible. And then, all right, if those are all possible, what are the threats? What are the opportunities? And how do we prepare for them? So are you, just to try to help people get their arms around all of this, because again, it, it can be really unruly. Are you looking at the world first, just like full open aperture? Like, let's just see all the crazy stuff that's happening. Maybe we'll use a steep framework to look at society, technology, economy. We'll look at like those buckets, but like, we're just going to, we're just going to see what's out there completely. Or are you going in and saying, we want to look at all that stuff. We want to look at through the lens of male buyers between 25 and 40. Like, are like, because you're doing it based on a company and the products that you have and that you're going to create, are you getting specific about the audience or are you first just saying, well, let's just look completely broad and see what new insights we have or, or some combination of the two? Yeah, it's a great question. It is really some combination of the two and it depends on the question. So we do probably like a big macro force needs changing study every couple of years where we are going broad. It's not for a specific group of people. It's not for a specific product. It's just how is culture evolving and shifting, right? We do Where's the world going? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We do that every, we did it right before COVID. Obviously COVID, uh, it's interesting with COVID because it, it didn't change as drastically as it changed less than it didn't change, I guess to say. Like it certainly accelerated parts of what we had been watching, like wellness as an area that shifted, right? Hygiene, like wanting to sanitize things, like wanting to protect your folks. That definitely was on a rise, but people thinking about well-being and mental health was already there. Like that was not new information that just accelerated. So a lot of those big shifts, even with an impact of COVID, like yes, changed, but more of it maintained the same and just accelerated or decelerated certain themes that we saw. So we do that kind of study every couple of years. We obviously did it like recently because we wanted to understand those shifts and our impacts of things like COVID. So we do the broad understanding and that's kind of consistent ongoing. We also like monitor those themes and signals to see, are there any changes that are going to be happening? You know, we don't want to be blindsided by anything. So we have some always on tools to like keep that information alive. But to your point, we absolutely do work with specific consumer groups or maybe on a specific need or a value. So, you know, Gen Z is a hot topic for a lot of folks out there. It is for us. So we'll also study Gen Z in particular. So for us, we can, we are only looking at 21 plus. So we only have a short 
21 and 25 year olds, but we're studying them and how all of those things are having an impact and how that generation is looking very different, you know, than generations before them. They're much more pragmatic than their millennial counterparts. They are more stressed and anxious than any other generation. And if you look at what they've been through, you know, in their pretty young lives, you can kind of understand why that might be the case. And for us, they're behaving with alcohol and beverages very different. And so we will also study them, right? And what their needs are and what their values are and what kind of things are relevant to them and what's top of mind for them so that we can make sure that we're creating products that meet their needs. And we'll do that with other, you know, maybe it's demographics, but as I mentioned, like need-based too. So we might study things like how do folks relax? COVID has been, had a huge impact on us. And like I said, Gen Z is just anxious, but the rest of us are as well. So how do we help people relax? How do we enable connection, right? For a beverage company like ourselves, connection is, is one of the unique things we can offer to people. So how has things like connection changed, right? Like we've, you and I are connecting in a virtual world, like a lot of people did in the pandemic. And, and what is that doing to us as humans? And, and what are the benefits of it? And what are the drawbacks? And and what new problems to solve are coming out of that? And like, what is our role in solving them? So it's a little bit of everything. It really very much depends on the goal and what we're trying to accomplish. But we always have that kind of always on what are the macro shifts, cultural movements, changes happening. And then we might get more nuanced depending on the question or the problem we're trying to solve. How much history do you read? It's interesting when it comes to foresights because... It's an interesting question. <laughs> Me personally, probably should do a better job of reading more, but trends are cyclical, right? And so understanding where we've been is really important to understand where we're going. And there's a lot of value in understanding history to better direct, like, what are the possibilities? What way this could play out? Um, but myself, I'm not a history buff. Yeah. Well, and the reason I ask, and I know I kind of put you on the spot with that one, but I read a financial blogger, Morgan Housel, who wrote a great book called The Psychology of Money. And he's got just great posts on investing, but it's also like, it's just all about human behavior. It is in my Libby app right now. Wait, wait oh, well, there it. you go. Yeah. It, it, have you started it yet? I haven't. I'm waiting for it. It's a fantastic book. Fantastic book. And his blog is great too. And he will oftentimes go back and look at, tell stories from history that illustrate how people behave in certain situations and then say, you know, how can you expect now to be facing the same thing and react differently than these people did? Like you, you have to, you have to understand that human behavior is kind of human behavior. And while our technology and medicine and all these things have changed, the way that we react to different situations and stimulus has pretty much stayed the same. And so I'm not as good about reading history myself, but I love somebody who can take it and digest it and make sense of it for me so that I can then apply it on a go forward basis. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say I leverage a lot of our partners who are very versed in that. Like when we, we work with companies who have like dedicated futurists, right? This is a, a small part of my overall job for them. It's all they do. And everything they do. And they're spending a lot of time doing that. I can tell you not history, 
but we do look back to go forward sometimes. So I'll, I'll give you a category example. You know, everybody has been talking about heart seltzer for the last couple of years. If you went back in time, that phenomenon was very easy to predict because there were some functional and emotional trends that were happening that all intersected. So if I went back and looked at hard seltzer before it took off, there were things like, again, wellness, right? Like people being more aware and conscious of what they were putting into their bodies, right? Hard seltzers, most of them sit at around hundred calories. There was like growing trends and products of like people wanting something like carbonated, bubbly, fizzier, right? That had another big intersection. And we had been seeing and continued to watch the growth of things that are more flavor forward, right? And so if you took a step back, those three things really intersected very nicely to create what hard seltzer was. And so a lot of what my team's job specifically is taking that foresight, what are the shifts, bringing it down to product trends, right? We're trying to create a new to the world product at the end of the day. And so how do we look at all of those trends and signals and how are they intersecting and what are the needs or problems we're trying to solve for folks? And how do we take all that and wrap it up together and create a new product? And so, so your question on history is like, should we be looking at history? Like, absolutely. In terms of like human behavior and understanding the past, like people are, can more or less like predict what people are going to do. Not always the case, but we can try but you can also take that same lens for products and take a look backwards and how do we learn from that and what worked and apply it to going forward. I think the lessons from history aren't necessarily like this thing happened. It's how did people respond to the things that happened? Because people will continue to respond similarly. If you look at COVID, you know, if you've read stories about what happened when the Spanish flu and whatever that was, 1919, that, you know, masking controversies and the, you know, the country kind of splintered into two different groups and how we thought about how we should be reacting. And they're like, you just read all these stories and it's exactly what happened a hundred years later, you know, same type of behavior. Granted, we have different medicines and different technologies that we're communicating with, but the behavior, you know, the psychological reaction was the same. Yeah, absolutely. We, I remember right, right when the pandemic started, there was a great body of work by one of our partners that was put out and they had talked about the Spanish flu and the potential and very accurately predicted a few scenarios. And one of them was the exact scenario that we're in, right? That it wasn't going to be a one and done, that it was going to be an evolving, it would spike, it would retreat, it would spike again, it would treat, and it would be a long-term thing. And I remember even with having this, you know, kind of futures thinking in mind, it was like, I hope it's not that one. I hope it's not that <laughs> scenario, you know, very rightfully knowing there was a ton of information to direct us that that was a very real possibility, but, you know, still we're humans and I wasn't ready to, to believe that that was going to be the case. But here we are three years later. I want to also ask you about some of the insights that you were talking about, how you go to your customers, how do you, how does that work? Like, are you calling on specific customers? Are you calling on specific, like big segments of the population and just asking them general questions? I think some companies have a tough time figuring out how to go to their customers to get the right kind of feedback. So we'd just be curious, you know, you don't need to share any of the secret sauce, but if there's anything you can share about how to get 
good insights from your customer base. That would be great. Yeah. And I'm going to use customer base as like how we probably talk about consumers. So the end people that are going to enjoy our products. I, we're really lucky. You know, I'm part of a pretty large organization that has a lot of resources at our disposal. So we, what we look at really depends again on the question that we have, like, what are we trying to answer? Am I trying to answer what are the big macro shifts or I'm trying to answer what is the right product claim to put on this package, right? So with the big caveat that what we use varies pretty drastically because we answer big, massive, you know, theoretical questions and we answer very specific tactical questions. Um, But we use everything from things like sales, purchasing data. So what people are buying at the stores, you know, how is that changing? What is happening more on menu trends at restaurants and how is that evolving? You know, we'll do traditional work like surveys. So we'll ask people, you know, we'll send out big surveys. Uh, Sometimes they're custom to us and what we want to ask. Sometimes we purchase syndicated surveys, but anything from what people think about brands to what types of things they're consuming. We'll look at things like social conversations, which has been interesting over the last couple of years. So what are people talking about online? What are their conversations like? What is coming up organically? What kind of product reviews are folks giving? And then we'll, of course, partner with folks who are monitoring these big like macro shifts and macro trends. And that's another input. But some of my favorite work we do is actually talking to folks, like talking to people one-on-one. So oftentimes we'll work with experts, which is really fun. So sometimes we'll work with academics, right? Maybe a historian to look back backwards at trends. Oftentimes it's folks like anthropologists or sociologists to understand the nuance of whatever behavior we're trying to understand. If we're doing something like Gen Z or trying to get a specific demographic group, We'll talk to influencers in that group or experts in that group or people who spend all their time studying that group. So we spend a lot of time with experts, which is really fun, but far and away, the best thing to do, and I think why anybody gets in the insights part of what I do, is talking to consumers, like talking to people one-on-one. And so that has really evolved since the pandemic, and there's a lot of different ways to talk to folks. You know, I would say pre-pandemic, we spent a lot more time in people's houses, right? I did a project on identity a couple of years back. It was amazing. So a big ask of like, how is identity changing and evolving? And for that, it was a lot of one-on-one conversations. I traveled all over the U.S. into people's homes asking about what made them them. We brought in a significant other of theirs, of their choosing to kind of get a balance of, is the identity they're saying reflected? Are you hearing the same thing? You know, kind of challenging some of that. It was definitely interesting, definitely keeps focus honest, which is fun. We did a van where we had a van parked in various parts of the city and we had like identity confessionals, right? If you ever remember taxi cab confessionals, we had a couple questions and it was, people went in, there was no one talking to them. They just could pick a question and tell us about themselves. And it was it was really amazing the amount of great content we came coming out of that. So that's the stuff I love to do. It certainly changed since the pandemic, right? We weren't going into people's homes. So a lot of that moved to virtual, but we do everything from you know, maybe a traditional focus group. We have a group of people sitting around a table, trying something, reacting to something, telling us their thoughts on something. Like I said, we do individual interviews. Sometimes we'll do friend groups, which is fun. We'll do discussion boards, like online, pose a question, probe things. So we have a lot of different tools at our disposal. 
I think one of the, the tools that people don't often talk about is actually your own observations. So a lot of times it's just like looking up and out at what's going on in the world. It's like when I go to it's the- just actually thinking about what you're seeing. Yeah. 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 And we forget yeah. that. I forget that sometimes too. But if I'm going to a new restaurant here in Chicago, what's on the menu? What feels new and different? Like if I'm going into a store, what kind of trends am I seeing? If I'm going home for the holidays, what are folks bringing to the parties in that? And I think we, a lot of insights folks like naturally have that curiosity where they're going to want to investigate and ask those questions. But I think that's a big part of it too. But really my team's job, we have a ton of resources at our disposal. We're very, very lucky in that. And so my team's job is to look at all those resources, whatever we have, and try to pick up patterns and themes, right? And then taking all that information and trying to distill it into something meaningful, right? Trying to dissect what might be really going on underneath what what that stuff is happening, kind of peel back the layers and, and get a little bit deeper on it. Do you journal? Like what, what's the actual process for going deep on that? Because it's easy to say like, yeah, we do that. But is that a formal meeting that you have every week where you go deep on that? Are you just spending time journaling on it? Like what, how do you actually do that? Yeah. Yeah. So we, it's not totally formalized, but we have where we, we have like a running tracker of what we're seeing in market. Right. So a lot of times that shows up at like new products in market where we have, we're avid users of teams here. And so we have a whole chat that anytime anybody sees anything interesting, they're just throwing in the chat, check out what I saw this weekend. Have you seen this? Look at what's going on with this. I found this interesting. So we have, it's more of an informal conversation. And then we have a lot of partners that we work with that help us keep track of things as well. There's a lot of formalized processes for what are the new products that are coming to market, for example. If I wanted to learn that, like I have resources that I can go and and get that from them as well. And in the process of vetting all of this, how do you, especially with your own observations, how do you avoid biases? Such a good question. Yeah. And, and that's really important. So even with our own observations, what I want to do is take my own observation or opinion of a single person or a small group of people and assume that that is the truth for everyone. I think that's a dangerous place to go. So if we make an observation, that's all it is. It's an observation. It's a point to go learn more about like, oh, I've seen Japanese whiskeys show up a lot more, for example, right? Like, is that a real thing or is it just something that I think is interesting? And so I've noticed. And so Yeah. And now it's like buying a new car. You see it everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. You have to put those checks and balances. And I think we are, and and you have to have a team that has diverse opinions and points of view and background and experiences. I think that helps because if we have a diverse team, then we should be noticing different things, right? We're all unique individuals, but we have to still put in checks and balances. So what we would never do is say, oh, I saw this thing in market. I like it. I, one person, am going to make this happen. It's going to be our next big thing. That's a lot where my innovation insights team, part of our job comes in because our job is to vet that. Is that true for just us? Or is that thing we're seeing true for a broader population? Is it true for the masses? And it doesn't have to be true for everybody to be something that we investigate or pursue, but it has, we have to be outside of our bubble, right? Like we have to look outside. So whenever I talk about just looking up and out and observation, it's really just 
a source of inspiration to go do more work and more due diligence, you know, to find out more about whatever that is that we're seeing. So outside of the biases that we just talked about, what are the other traps or pitfalls that people fall into that maybe lead them astray when they're trying to do this kind of work? I don't know if it's a trap as much as it's a challenge for us on innovation. I think one of the challenges is balancing speed and rigor, right? Because there is an advantage to be first to market, but you got to do that in an educated, informed way. And sometimes an educated, informed way can take a good amount of time. So that's something we're constantly trying to balance. Like we balance, we want to be able to take smart risks, but we want to be able to do it in an informed way. So that's like one tension. I I think the other tension I feel as part of an innovation team is we have this idea that we want to launch products we love, right? Like we want to love it and feel for it. Because if we do, we'll fight for it. And we believe other people will love it too. But we have to balance that with being okay with killing something you love too. Because kill, kill your darlings. Yeah. That's another you, you gotta be, writing saying, yeah. You got to be comfortable with that. And so I think that's that's always a tricky balance because you, you need to be able to be comfortable with continuing to iterate, right? Iteration is our friend on innovation. And you might not get it all right the first time. And you have to be, you can't love something so much that you won't change it. Very much the same philosophy as writing. Like you need those rounds of edits to make it stronger. Yeah. With anything, right? You you have to realize that the first cut at it is going to be the shittiest cut of it, you know, and, and that you're going to have to make changes, sometimes drastic changes to make things better. I think we forget about that when we create something new for the first time, you know, we're like, oh, we had this great idea and then we created this thing. And so it's got to be great, but it's like the great ideas don't automatically translate into great first drafts. In fact, they practically never do. It gets you on the path towards a good outcome. And then you have to iterate and test and iterate and test and iterate. Yeah. And that's where my team comes in and we do a lot of work and we're trying to more and more so bring consumers into part of that process, right? Instead of going somewhere, creating this thing based on what we heard, coming back and having this magic product that everybody's going to love. Like, how do we bring folks into that process and help us iterate, right? Real time, like help us, like, what's the thing you would want and work more in tandem to get to ultimately, you know, a better solution, which is a lot of fun. It's it also, like I said, our job is really fun. So bringing people in to that process is, is a good time. Yeah. And speaking of signals and trends, One that I am paying a lot more attention to now is the continued rise of design thinking and not just for products, but for experiences as well. And just how anything that you are building that somebody else has to interact with can benefit from the principles of design thinking. And I just am starting to see it pop up in all different types of places. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a big topic here, right? And that's part of that co-creation is is bringing people in along for the ride so we can make our products more relevant to them. And I think a big part of that too is, and it's one of the things that we always look for in our team is ensuring folks have empathy, right? It's, It's such a big part of that, but empathy 
the ability to understand, you know, someone else so deeply that you're compelled to act on their behalf is how we think about empathy. And if you can bring that into the innovation process, I mean, that's magic happens, right? So one question that has kind of bubbled into my head as we've been talking is that this type of research, this type of work and brainstorming is great. But as you said at the beginning, you can't predict the future. Even the best futurists are not predicting the future. They're modeling potential future outcomes. And they're modeling several potential future outcomes. And some may be right, but they're not predicting the future. So at some point, somebody at Molson Coors has to say, go for it. You know, authorized, put the stamp on it. How confident do you have to be to act and execute? Like what is, where, how should people think about the data that they're looking at and their ability to act and make a decision? Cause I think, I think a lot of people get paralyzed. They want to see all the data or they want something that's a sure thing. Otherwise they're not going to invest money or time or their social you know, reputation. You know, people get hesitant and they kill projects. Like, how should people be thinking about the risk associated with maybe not having all of the information, but still needing to act anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think folks need to have, we need to be comfortable taking educated risks, right? So if we think about, if we're going to launch a new product, there are times when that's scary, right? We don't know that everything's exactly right. Maybe our timeline got cut short and we had to cut things we wanted to do. And that feels scary. But if you take a look back and, you know, if we think back to what we know about some of the macro forces, like, I think you can ask yourself a couple of questions, right? Like, is this hitting on a bigger cultural thing? Does it seem relevant in culture? Right? Okay, great. Check. And if you did the work ahead of time, you should be there. Is this thing that you're creating meeting a need? Is there a reason for this thing to exist? If your answer is no, or it's just like something else, then maybe you want to think about killing it. And I think that leads into the third thing to maybe think about is what is the unique point of difference or unique proposition for this thing? And if you don't have anything unique, then then why do you exist, right? Like if you're not doing anything different or better, and it's not hitting a need, then why do you exist? And those are the things that I would maybe kill. But if you could answer those three questions and say, yep, this is a, this feels like it's hitting on a big macro theme that's happening in culture, whatever that is, it is relevant and is solving a job or need to be done for the consumer. And it has a unique point of difference. Then, you know, maybe you take risks and risk looks different for different people in different organizations and different products. And maybe your risk is you're going to pilot something or incubate it or learn from it and then iterate. Or maybe you're going to go out in a big bet. I mean, I think that really depends on the amount of risk your organization is ready to take. But yeah, those are the things that, that I would think about asking yourself. So just to say those back to you, it's is this aligned with a trend? Is it solving a problem? And is it unique? Yeah. And I would maybe even say aligned with the trends, more so like relevant for people. I like ways that people can make some of these decisions because I think 
sometimes we're out there with this big decisions to make and we don't know, you know, we're just doing the, you know, finger up in the wind and saying, does this feel right? And we don't actually have some decision criteria or framework that we use to make decisions to give ourselves the best benefit of the doubt when we're making the bets in life that we need to make. I mean, a lot of folks will like take a, an approach that is like, is it a consumer fit? Is it a category fit? Is it a company fit? Is it a cultural fit? And I think that's, you know, similar in a lot of ways, a similar type framework. So last question for you here, because I know we're getting close to time. What are the trends that you are paying attention to now in the world? I don't, you don't need to give us insight into necessarily how Gen Z is consuming their alcohol, but just what are the things that you see out in the world that you, your little spidey sense tells you are going to have some pretty big ripple effects? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about a few of them, but I, I think overall how identity is shifting is is really something we all need to be paying attention to. And I, I'm lumping on- And how do you, how do you define identity? Because we, we hear identity now and we think gender identity. Is that what you're talking about or is there something broader definition? It's a part of it. I mean, I think not to go too in the weeds on how identity is defined, but it's defined differently for different people, right? And so I'm putting everything in there from like gender identity to race and ethnicity. I think age, I think not this overall theme of like not acting in the binary, like not acting in a, a particular definition of all of those things I just said, I think is evolving. But I guess when I, I take a step back and talk about the trends that lead me to think about identity shifts, we're looking at things like the changing demographics of the U.S., right? Like we, our population looks just drastically different than it did, and it's going to continue to change and evolve. And how people are getting a much deserved seat at the table that they haven't had before is also shifting, right? And that's something we need to pay attention to. And that is creating tensions, right? That's creating tensions with different groups of folks. And that everything that's wrapped up into those spaces is, I don't think, going to stop anytime soon. And so part of when I, I think about like a broader shift of identity, I think about how there are different segments of people and we can curate our experience based on the things and people that we like. And that can be dangerous, right? Like we can create these bubbles of people who are just like us, quote unquote, you can go find anyone who's just like you. And that is also a challenge. So there's a lot of things that are wrapped up into when I even say something like evolving identity, it's so many layers and nuance. And I, I think that's something we need to continue to watch and continue to watch like the tensions that are happening because of it. Cause I, I don't predict that's going away. We talked about well-being, And so wellness has been a trend for like 10 years. It's, I mean, it's not a new idea, but I think people, most organizations are paying attention to this in a big way, but everybody should be right. And it's thinking about the evolving definition of wellness or well-being. You know, it's not just your physical health, it's your mental health. It's how all those things work in concert. One area that I'm very passionate about that I've seen on the rise for the past several years is this idea of social impact or agents of change or, or people wanting businesses to take on a bigger role and being held more accountable. Like, so not just in the products they produce, but also with their employees. So you see consumers demanding businesses 
to no longer do no harm, but what is the net benefit of those organizations? Are we leaving the world in a better place than we found it? And that's an area that is extremely important to our younger consumers. It's important to me personally and something that I think folks need to keep an eye on. And I think you can get tripped up in this space because sometimes when you talk about social impact or people being in the business for good, people think of that as like maybe altruism, like that you can't, are you saying we have to give all of our money away? And I, I think there's a balance, like being in the business of good can be profitable too. And it's about being authentic and really understanding who your consumers are, what they care about. You know, it's, it's not like everybody needs to get involved in a particular issue. It's not that. It's like, well, what makes sense for your brands or your customers or your community? But I, I think that's going to increase as the younger generation grows up. I think the demands on business are going to be drastically different. Yeah. And those companies can be profitable. Patagonia yeah, seems to be absolutely. doing just fine and they give a lot of money away. Yeah, absolutely. They're a great example. Well, thank you for those. And thank you for coming on here. I guess I have, I have one more question, and this is always an interesting one, puts me a little at risk too, if I've asked you about this, but what are you sick of talking about? Like, what do you, what's, it's just either over talked about or people get wrong or you're just like, you're just sick of talking about it. I don't think it's over talked about or people get it wrong, but I'm really sick of talking about inflation. <laughs> I don't know if you're talking about that a lot, but it feels like every topic, every new report I get it's very important. You know, listen, it's like top of mind for everyone for a variety of reasons. It's top of mind for business because it's impacting us in a big way. It's top of mind consumers because they're paying more and getting less. But so we should be talking about it, but I'd rather uncover more nuance um, than that. Well, thank you, Kim, for coming on. This has been a really interesting conversation. I find the nature of what you do interesting anyway. And so it, it's fun to dive into it and think that there are people out there doing this kind of fun work. So appreciate you sharing it. And I hope that it inspires people to maybe look at the world in a little different way or think about their business in a different way. So appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.